peace of Christ be with you all. We'll now turn to the reading of the word of God. Today's passage comes from John chapter 12. It's on page 981 in the Pew Bible. I invite you to stand for the reading of the word of God. The Holy Gospel according to John. John 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at table with him. Then Mary took a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why, was this, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money er, given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. This is the word of the Lord. Have you ever been to a gathering of people where there's a supposed reason for people to get gathered, but instead there's actually a real reason for gathering that no one is talking about? In that kind of situation, there can be anxiety. There's tension under the polite conversation. Maybe that sounds a bit uh, conceptual. Let me use an illustration from the 2019 movie, The Farewell, where Nora Lum... Uh, plays Aqua, who is also known as Aquafina, plays a young Chinese-American woman named Billy who travels back to China to see her beloved grandma, whom she calls Nai Nai. It's the maternal grandma reference in Chinese. Now, Nai Nai has been recently diagnosed with terminal cancer, but she thinks that, she doesn't know it, she thinks that the recent bout of tests have been, you know, routine and there's nothing to be concerned about. Why? Because in Chinese culture, talking about death is a social faux pas. And so the family has decided to withhold the truth about grandma's test results so that it wouldn't be a burden on her. Instead, they would take the burden, the emotional burden of this truth and of her, of her impending death together as a family. This was their way of honoring and loving 
her well. So they make up a reason to get together, for all the family to gather under the auspices of one of the co Billy's cousins getting married shortly. So they all gather one more last time in China to honor Grandma. Now most of the movie is about Billy's struggle with her Western value of trying to wanting to tell the truth to Nai Nai, but juxtaposed against this Eastern value of her family wanting to withhold the truth from Nai Nai, but also because of love for her. And so when they gather for the first time for this family meal in the family home, there's tension in the room. Everyone but Nai Nai knows what's going on and why they are gathered there. Everyone has different emotions. Everyone has different thoughts about how to respect Nai Nai and how to say farewell to her appropriately. You know, we're in the middle of this holy hardship series that's taking us through the season of Lent and where we're looking at the gospel readings of the lectionary. And today's takes us to John chapter 12. It's kind of a similar gathering, a meaningful meal filled with anxiety and tension. Everyone knows a farewell to their teacher, Jesus, is impending. And they're each processing it in their own way. Each character in the story is expressing a sacrifice they're making to honor Jesus. So we're going to walk through this text in three you know, sections. One is extravagance, the extravagance of sacrifice. Two is this comparison. And three, this suffering that it points to. You know, last week we looked at the extravagance of, uh, the extravagant love of God imaged in the prodigal love of the father for his two sons in Luke chapter 15. And this week we're going to look at a different kind of extravagance, an extravagance of sacrifice and of worship amongst the characters in this scene. And like Billy's family in the movie, The Farewell, Jesus' friends, too, they know something is about to happen. And they're each trying to find their own way of expressing honor and, and love towards their beloved teacher. You see, Jesus, as we heard at the, at, towards the end of this chapter, has been on the run. He's been on the run in the wilderness away from G Jerusalem because the chief priests and the Pharisees have issued a kill order on Jesus. In the previous chapter, in John chapter 11, John reports that this meal takes place in the town of Bethany, immediately after the chief priests and Pharisees have uh, plotted to kill Jesus. But why this death threat? Because Jesus was actually in Bethany, the same village as he is in this scene earlier, and he had just raised Lazarus from the dead. The Pharisees, and they, the Pharisees had, you know, were ready to find him and capture him. They saw Jesus as a threat to their power and to their influence. Now this is Bethany, and Jesus has been hiding out in the wilderness, and he's coming back towards Jerusalem. If, you, if you're not familiar with it, I had, you know, I had a chance to visit, and you start to connect all these places. Bethany is about two miles from the ancient city of Jerusalem. That's about the distance of the Nats Ballpark Stadium to where we're gathered here at 9th and Maryland on Capitol Hill. So for Jesus to be out in the wilderness and to come back to Bethany, that's coming onto the radar of the Pharisees and the chief priests. It's high risk. So what is happening? You know, the meal takes place uh, on the evening before the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. It's the night before. It's Saturday night. The eve that event is what we're going to celebrate next week with the children helping us. Is what we Christians call Palm Sunday. So with all this in mind, we see a number of sacrifices, a number of acts of worship made in honor of Jesus in these brief verses. 
And though our attention is immediately drawn to the extravagance of Mary's actions, you can't overlook the other characters in this scene as well. In Mark's account of the scene in Mark chapter 14, we're told that this meal is hosted at Simon the leper's house. Now, we don't know much about Simon. This is the, probably the only mention of him. But for him to be known as Simon the leper, and now he's hosting people, means he's no longer a leper, but he was known as a leper, and he's probably healed. So, some, so, so Simon is demonstrating an incredible act of gratitude and hospitality in welcoming Jesus and his closest friends into his home to honor Jesus. But he's also doing this at incredible risk to himself and to his family. Because the chief priests and, and the Pharisees have issued an APB on Jesus. What if there was a traitor in their midst? Incredible risk. Extravagant sacrifice. Then we're told about Martha in, chapter, in verse 2. Very quickly, Martha served. She served a dinner. And based on a previous interaction with Jesus, we know that Martha is a person of action. She is a doer. She cooks up a storm to serve not only Jesus, but all of the guests in this home, which is likely Simon and his family, and Mary and Martha and Lazarus because they're there, and likely the rest of Jesus' disciples because we know Judas is there and John is reporting and sitting there looking at all this. So that's at least 20 people that she's cooking up a meal for with no gas range, with no refrigeration, with no microwave or DoorDash delivery service. This is no small feat. Extravagant sacrifice. And then we come to Judas in verse 4. Consider at this point, while we as the readers may know that he is a traitor, his comments express his way of sacrificing to honor his teacher. And when, we see, when, when he sees Mary's extravagant worship, he is the bookkeeper for Jesus' group. Questions whether this money could have been used more for more charitable and more effective purposes rather than wasted all at one time on this one person. He's thinking, how can we sacrifice to honor Jesus? There, of course, we come to Mary, who gets the most attention in this scene. Well, why? Because her actions are probably the most unexpected. While everyone's reclined at the table, they, back then you would lean one shoulder on, uh, there was no chairs, you would lean one shoulder on the table and have your feet pointed away from the table. Mary goes up to Jesus and breaks open this, this perfume uh, jar of pure nard and begins to anoint Jesus' feet. But not only that, she doesn't just touch his feet, she and uh, takes, uh, takes down her hair, which in uh, ancient times was akin to stripping down to your underwear in a formal dinner setting. And she takes this and she begins wiping Jesus' feet uh, with her hair and this oil. And it's shocking. It's scandalous to do something like this at that time. It's probably scandalous to do it in our time too. Now, if you read Mark's account, Mark reports that she took this open perfume and proceeded not only to wipe his feet, but she pours it on Jesus' head while he's sitting at the dinner table. And this isn't just some perfume kit you buy from Costco or the department store. Do people still go to department stores? But this is like worth an entire year's salary. I want you to think of your annual salary. You don't have to tell anyone. Think of that value and think of spending 
all of that at one time for one person, and it's done. This scene is so full of wow, mind-blowing wow. Once again, extravagant and sacrificial worship. And amidst all this, there's this anxiety and tension of what is about to happen to Jesus. Each character is expressing their way of worship that is not unsubstantial. They are each incredibly sacrificial. They are risk-taking. They are burden-bearing. They are extravagant. So here's a question for us. How extravagant and sacrificial is our worship of Jesus? If you're a Jesus follower, is it very measured out? Is it done in a way that you don't rock the boat? You don't get any attention of others? Perhaps it is extravagant in time and effort like Martha. You do things behind the scenes. Or maybe it's risk-taking like Simon. Or maybe it's generous and towards the poor and the marginalized and those who experience injustice like Judas. When was the last time you did something completely over-the-top and radical like Mary in honor of Jesus? As Jesus followers, we think about the ways that we express our worship in honor of Jesus. Do we give God the best of our thoughts and the best of our energy? Or is your relationship with God just an afterthought? You know, when we prepare for Sunday worship together, like this on Sunday morning, are we thinking about it after our kids and families wake up on Sunday morning? Or are we thinking about it the night before? Are we giving God the best? Do we give God leftovers of what God has entrusted to us? And does the way we spend our time and does the way we spend our money reflect the great worth that we say Jesus is? If you're on top of things, hopefully you've, you're well on your way on, on have de- do, doing your taxes. If not, consider this a courtesy. You've got two more weeks. As you go through your taxes and look at the numbers, what does the charitable contributions look like? How does their value compare to the, your gross income for the year? You know, many Jesus followers choose to tithe, which in Hebrew means to give a tenth of your income. And that's a baseline, and giving offerings is above and beyond that. And when you think about all the ways that God has entrusted financial resources to you, how does your giving reflect the worth of God in your life? The way you give of your financial resources doesn't say everything about the way you sacrifice for Jesus, but it does say something. As we think about the extravagant sacrifices of Jesus' disciples and friends, it's an opportunity to think about the extravagance of our sacrifice for Jesus' sake. Now, there's something else going on here, though. As I ask you to think about how you give your time and attention and resources to acknowledge God, it's very easy to get into a comparison game. You may be feeling it as I speak. You know, I ask you to think about your annual salary. Think about the way that you express your worship to God. And if you, you might even identify with one of the characters in this story a little more than the others because you're naturally disposed towards their expressions and you compare them with others. Consider this, is Simon opening up his home more sacrificial? Or is Martha cooking up a storm? Or is Judas wanting to give to the poor? Or Mary breaking open this expensive jar of perfume? Which of these is better and more sacrificial? 
How do we even measure what action of, or sacrifice is more extravagant and more sacrificial and more worshipful? We measure it by the risk taken or by the effort involved or by the monetary value or by its shock value. Now, the fact that all these details are included in this on these gospel accounts are, of this scene aren't just for narrative interest. They say something about what is being noticed in the room. Surely, Mary and Martha already had a comparison thing going on. We've heard it before in Luke chapter 10, when Martha com comments to Jesus, complained to Jesus about an earlier visit in their home because Martha was doing all of the serving, all of the cooking, while Mary had the nerve to just sit there at Jesus' feet and listen to his teaching. So what does Martha say to Jesus? Verse 40, 41. Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. To which Jesus responds, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. Huh. Jesus seems to make a comparison here, right? Hold the thought. You know, I've spent, many, I spent years, my teenage years and young adult years growing up in a charismatic church setting. And I often heard this comparison between Mary and Martha as an encouragement to prioritize real worship or or let me clarify, uh, a certain type of expressive worship and prayer that was deemed better than serving or, or uh, sh uh, sharing good, the good news of Jesus with others. And in that setting, better or more extravagant worship was often measured by the degree of emotional expressiveness you displayed or how impassioned your prayers were. And let me say that there is space for emotional expressiveness, and impassioned prayers. And I feel like in our WCF setting and in D.C., there is probably a little more room for that than we are comfortable with. <laughs> All right, I need more of those. Thank you, Carol. And I think all y'alls, all y'alls can venture more into this realm of expression a bit more. Not because it's better, but because there's more to worship than what we are comfortable with and what doesn't rock the boat, or what make, might make people uncomfortable. But back to the point of my story. It's very easy to fall into this comparison trap when it comes to what we find ourselves most naturally inclined towards in our sacrifices to Jesus. This text challenges us to open that up. If the characters in the scene perhaps attended WCF, maybe Simon would be on the board of trustees. Martha would probably be on the fellowship commission. And Judas is on the finance and mutual aid committee. And Mary, well, she's pretty, I'm pretty sure she'd be on the worship commission. We're all looking, observing to see which commission is better or more important for the work of God. But that's not the point. The challenge in bringing our sacrifice of worship and service to Jesus is this. How do we know what is more costly and more sacrificial and more worshipful? Perhaps Judas's response gives us a hint. You know, John knows this as he's writing it, the gospel, and we know it 
as we read this, that Judas is the traitor in the story. But at the time of the scene, no one really knows this except maybe Jesus. Other disciples are looking on and thinking, wow, Judas is such a good guy. He's good with numbers. I'm so glad that he's helping us handle our, 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 our figures. And on top of that, he said, man, this jar of perfume, the value of that could have gone to feed so many and help so many poor people. Man, we're so lucky to have someone like him. Find out that that's not the case. So on the outside, we can't measure the worshipfulness and the extravagance merely by our actions. They are measured, we find, by intent and motive. Why are we doing this and who are we doing this for? But that's not all. It's not just well-intentioned motives. Let's return to what Jesus says to Mary for a clue. In verses 7 and 8, Jesus recognizes Mary's expression of worship, not because of the lack of social propriety, nor because of the incredible material value of what she did. Instead, he says something very cryptic and difficult to translate. He says, it was intended, I'll just find it here. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor amongst you, but you will not always have me. You go to Mark's account, he adds a little further detail. That she did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this, the gospel is preached and throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. You know, Jesus' response suggests that what Judas thought could be sold to benefit the poor, Mary had been keeping this expensive perfume to anoint his body after his death. She unknowingly says more than she knows through her actions at this dinner scene. Her act of love and adoration is a prophetic statement that Jesus is going to be buried in very short time because he's going to die. There may not be time for a proper anointing. So conscious or not about what she's doing, her actions signify that she proclaims the mystery of the gospel far earlier than anyone else does in this scene. That's why her actions are so notable. That's why her actions of worship are to be remembered. It was a woman in Jesus' circle who is one of the first to declare who Jesus is and what he came to do. That's radical. Keeping the rest of the anointing perfume for his burial is more important than giving it to the poor. Why? Not because Jesus is some self-centered narcissist and wants the attention or that charitable causes are unimportant, but because he, the purpose of his death will be more important than selling it and giving it to the poor. See, during Jesus' ministry, he spoke much about the poor and the marginalized and how, he, how the kingdom of God was for them. But the only way that what he said then makes sense in light of what he says here is that Jesus believed that his death would be the action through which the whole world, including the poor, including those who are um, victims of injustice, would, it's through his death that one day would be, all of this would be set right. That's what, why 
her actions were so sacrificial and extravagant. Mary had, of course, expended a lavish gift on Jesus, but she also appears to be the very first person to recognize that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is realized only in suffering, and namely the suffering and death of Jesus, her teacher. The extravagant sacrifice of Mary is so notable, not because of the extravagance of her sacrifice, but because it points to the extravagance of Jesus' sacrifice. And that perhaps is the most important intent that informs our sacrifice and worship as Jesus' followers. You know, many people who don't profess to be followers of Jesus might say something like this. You know, well, I don't need religion to tell me to be generous or to be charitable or to be sacrificial. Come on, it's just the right thing to do. I can serve. I can be charitable. I can be generous because I'm an enlightened human being. Knows that's just the right thing to do. I don't need God or Jesus or something called the gospel to tell me to do that. But that's missing the point of Christian worship and service. You know, all of our sacrifice and all of our acts of worship aren't only to benefit others or even to benefit ourselves. They are to benefit others by drawing their attention to the extravagant sacrifice of Jesus in his life, in his death and resurrection. That's why we do all the things that we do for Jesus. You know, this week we announced in our newsletter that we posted uh, two jobs for our STEM summer camp program for elementary-aged students most affected by pandemic learning loss. Now, we're doing this, uh, are we doing this because we think we're the best at running these programs or because we have a better idea of justice? Not really. Because others are doing just as good or even better work. But we're doing this because we want students to know how much God loves them and how Jesus brings hope and strength and purpose that cannot be found anywhere else in this world. And though we may not be able to preach the gospel explicitly every day at the STEM summer camp, we want to serve them in ways that they can hear the good news of Jesus. So we can commit to praying. We can commit to giving financially. We can volunteer to serve. All of this is done in hopes that these students would come to see and come and know God's extravagant love for them in Christ. You know, whether it's STEM program or in your giving or in the way you use your time or the justice initiatives that you are passionate about, don't compare yourself with one another. Don't compare your sacrifices. Instead, may all of your sacrifices, may all of your worship be informed by and may it point to the extravagant sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And as you do so, may you find People's lives filled with joy. And may God be glorified in all that you do.